Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, in the early 16th century, there was on the world stage a cast of royal characters that could almost persuade the most hardened social historian to reconsider their views on the great man theory of history. In Europe were Francis I of France, Henry VIII of England, and Charles V, King of Spain, and the Holy Roman Emperor. In Russia ruled Ivan IV, also known as the Terrible. In India, Babur and Akbar, founders of the Mughal dynasty. And in Persia, the Safavid rulers, Shah Ismail and Shah Tamash. As my guest writes, all of these monarchs resorted to warfare as an instrument of empire building, sought to establish control over their own elites and aristocracies, paid particular attention to creating and maintaining a multi-layered reputation as ruler, patron, soldier, and statesman, and sought to establish central control over religious matters during a time of intense theological debates and spiritual anxieties. They are also acutely aware of each other, and they openly competed among themselves for control of land and resources and for prestige. In their geographical midst was one to whom all looked, against whom all compared themselves, and against whom nearly all of them competed in one way or another. This was Suleiman, the ruler of the Ottoman Empire, known to contemporaries as the Grand Turk, and ever after as the Magnificent. Peerless Among Princes, The Life and Times of Sultan Suleiman is a fascinating new biography of this towering figure in world history. Its author, Kaya Shaheen, is with me today. He's Associate Professor of History at Indiana University, where he also serves in the Department of Central Eurasian Studies and Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. Kayo, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much, and thank you for your invitation. So, who were the Ottomans before Suleiman? Um, just let's do the level setting that is yeah. always you know, common to this podcast. Uh, where do they rule? Who do they rule? How did they rule? And so, yeah. so uh, thank you for coming up with these wonderful questions. Uh, I was thinking about how to answer them, and I thought I would start my answer to your first question by going back to the word Ottoman. Where does it come from? Because I think it, the, the origins of the word itself or the adjective explain a lot. So Ottoman is the adjectival form of Osman who is uh, usually seen as the founder of the dynasty. So we have a dynasty that is named after an initial founder. Now, this in itself is an interesting thing because uh, the Ottomans, the, the ancestors of Suleiman, did not come from a major uh, dynastic line. They did not have a very stellar pedigree. The founder of the dynasty, Osman, was basically a soldier of fortune living in this gray zone between two larger powers, the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate and the Byzantine Empire, and basically you know, establishing these local alliances with people like him. So the ancestors of Suleiman, in other words, you know, were not very illustrious uh, before uh, the first decades of the 14th century. They were Turkish-speaking nomads. We believe that they entered the Anatolian Peninsula 
as they escaped uh, from the advancing Mongol armies, you know, marching from uh, east to west. And the ancestors of Suleiman uh, eventually settled in this sort of uh, area in north, uh, northwestern Anatolia. Uh, they were long-distance nomads, and in that particular location, they, they transformed themselves into seasonal nomadism. It's also called transhumans. So they, they and their flocks uh, would go up the hills during summer in search for pastures, and in the winter, they would come back down the plain, uh, you know, into the warmer areas. Uh, this was a place, this was a, this was a frontier environment in which there were other people of nomadic background. There were some Byzantine frontier so- forces. There were some Anatolian Seljuk frontier sources. So this was, I mean, you know, this was a little bit like the Wild West in a sense, uh, because it was a zone of flux. It was a zone of intermingling in every sense of the word. And this is the kind of environment in which the uh, birth of the Ottoman dynasty happened. So the dynasty is named after Osman because he is the sort of first identifiable figure who gathered a critical number of supporters around himself and who started raiding the surrounding communities and who kind of basically emerged uh, as a uh, local leader. Uh, After Osman, when we look at the transformation of the Ottoman enterprise uh, all the way uh, to the birth of Suleiman in the last years of the 15th century, what we see is a series of transformations. Uh, So the local leader, Osman, was able to leave his political project intact to one of his sons. The son developed it a little bit further through territorial expansion as well as the establishment of new kinds of alliances. Uh, Also, the establishment of things like something that looks like a standing army. And then the following generations basically kept uh, further expanding the Ottoman enterprise, territorially speaking. They were able to create new institutions for military recruitment as well as tax collection. Uh, They were also able to create ideological narratives about the sovereignty of the Ottoman dynasty and why the Ottomans were the legitimate rulers of a certain area. So they utilized, uh, you know, a lot of ideological instruments as well. There were a couple of low points. Uh, The Ottomans were defeated by Tamerlane in 1402. And from 1402 to 1413, you know, they, they were in this transition period in which it did look like the Ottoman enterprise would collapse. Uh, they were able to bring it back together after 1413. Uh, and then they had to deal with a series of uh, crusades uh, throughout the first half of the 15th century on the European side. And they were also able to fend the European threat off. And by 1453, they were able to take Constantinople. And so by the time Suleiman is born, after 200 years of warfare, institution building, violence, tax collection, dynastic marriages, the Ottomans look like a well-entrenched dynastic kingdom. They control most of the Anatolian Peninsula. They control Constantinople. Uh, they control a good part of the Balkans. Uh, they also control parts of the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, they have a navy, so they are also active in the Eastern Mediterranean as a kind of naval force. 
uh, they have a fairly sophisticated commercial network that ties them to the rest of Europe, the Mediterranean, uh, as well as uh, Central Asia. Uh, so they are fairly strong. But when you when you compare uh, the Ottoman Enterprise as it is uh, in the last decade of the 15th century, and when you look at the reigns of uh, Suleiman's father, Selim and Suleiman, the contrast is clear. And I think at, at some place I say that what we see under Suleiman is a transition from a dynastic regional kingdom to an empire with global ambitions. So that's that's who the Ottomans are, you know, around the time of Suleiman's birth. And that's kind of the transition that happens under the leadership of his father and then uh, under the reign of Suleiman. As I tried to emphasize in the introduction, the Ottoman Empire is at the heart of the European Asian. It is at the center of the ne- the nexus. Yes, and as and as Suleiman, as his father, expands and they take Egypt, it's even more so. So yeah. all Europe, Africa, and Asia come yeah. together at a point called the Ottoman Empire. Yes, yeah, e- exactly. It is. It is a central point. The Byzantines had a similar uh, advantage as well. I mean, Constantinople itself, you know, uh, the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople, I mean, it's ideologically and culturally, it is a, it is a major uh, achievement for the Ottomans. And it is seen as a major, you know, sign of historical transformation by pretty much everybody who hears about the event in 1453. Uh, but the ideological aspects aside, the control of Constantinople really gives the Ottomans this, you know, critical port that basically, you know, ties together these different regional and continental trade networks. And it's 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 a location that is strategic enough to serve as an entrepot. It's relatively easier to reach, so it is able to attract merchants from all over the place. So yes, I mean, especially after the conquest of Constantinople. Uh, but I mean, even before the, the before the conquest of Constantinople, a typical misconception about you know non-European uh, political entities is that you know they they mostly waged war. You know that's our image of the Mongols. That's the general image of the Ottomans. But when you look at the uh, at Ottoman expansion in the Balkans, for instance, much before Suleiman, you see that the control of commercial networks is always at the back of their minds. They were very much aware of that. And also, I mean, the, the, the trade, commercial activity brought cash, precious metals, precious materials that were not otherwise available. So these were, these were political formations that were based on an agricultural tax-paying body of subjects, but at the same time, you know, they were very savvy about commercial activity as well. And, and as you make very clear in the introduction throughout the book, yeah, there's a there's a sort of millenarian war going on. Yeah, there's a, a war of, of of eschatology. Yeah, that every one of these kingdoms that I mentioned, from India to England, is going through periods of religious transformation, and yeah. at at best at best. Uh, unease, <laughs> yeah. and and the Ottomans are no different. And uh, certainly, the, the the taking of Constantinople to Christians was the sign of of doom and a, a harbinger of, of of bad things to come. Yeah. But for the for the Ottomans, it's a sign of of a seal of destiny has been placed upon their house. Yes, exactly. Yes, uh, I wrote an article about 
Ottoman views on the on the capture of Constantinople uh, in 2010. I can't believe it's been 30 or 40 years. Uh, so in that article, uh, and it's available on my academia.edu page, in that article I talk, that, I talk about that. I talk about how the Ottoman capture of Constantinople is important, you know, for political and economic reasons, but at the same time, it is an event that kind of connects the Ottomans with a form of global history or sacred history with a, with a kind of eschatological narrative in which they start playing a very major role because, you know, the fall of Constantinople is seen as one of the signs of the coming of the end. Certain Ottomans are concerned about that. I mean, they are anxious and they, you know, uh, there are some religious scholars who believe that, you know, they have to prepare themselves for the coming of the end, that they have to seek for redemption because this is the sign of the end. But there are other uh, political uh, cadres who, as you said, basically see it as as, as a sort of as a seal of approval, as, as a sort of, you know, the manifest destiny type of thing. It, it is extraordinary that there's hardly one public figure or writer who does not indulge in speculations about the millennium, yeah. from Christopher Columbus to Martin Luther to Sule. I mean, Sule, they're all doing it. It's, it's the most, it would seem to me, one of the most common types of speculation. It really is. And... In a way, I find it somewhat similar to our age in the sense that we, we, we live in an age in which everybody has a lot of anxiety about, you know, environmental issues, about economic yeah. issues. I mean, I used to work more on apocalypticism, messianism. I mean, it's difficult to find a time in human history in which, you know, hum human beings were not concerned about those kinds of things. But as you were saying, there are certain periods in which, again, like our time, right now, in which these kinds of eschatological fears about the coming of the end are particularly palpable. And the the, the world in which Suleiman lived was one of those, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a way, Suleiman imagining himself as a figure with some messianic capabilities or thinking about his world historical mission, these things were fairly par for the course then we think about the period itself, because Charles V also, you know, and his supporters basically viewed him in similar eschatological terms. As the last, uh, the last world emperor. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's go to Suleiman himself. Um, merely because one is an Ottoman prince does not mean one will become the ruler of the Ottomans. No. So who is dad, whose mom uh, where is he born? What's his status at birth? All that stuff. So Suleiman is born in 1494 or 95. We have two different dates. Uh, he's born in Trabzon. It, it's on the eastern coast of the, on the southeastern coast of the Black Sea, the city of Trabzon. Which the, towers, is the, the Towers of Trebizond. Yes, exactly. The Towers of Trebizond. I mean, it's... Uh, the historical parts, the historical city where Suleiman lived is partly intact. So, you know, if anybody travels to Turkey or, you know, to the vicinity of that area, I would highly recommend them to go and check it out. The local cuisine is pretty good, too. So another reason <laughs> for visiting Trabzon. So Suleiman is born in Trabzon because his father, Selim, is a provincial governor there. And his father is also the son of the ruling sultan, Bayezid II. Suleiman's mother is named Hafsa, and she is a concubine. Uh, she is a slave girl who was, you know, either captured in a raid or purchased from some slave trader. 
so, and this was fairly regular uh, practice around the time Suleiman was born. The members of the Ottoman dynasty, like his father, and then eventually Suleiman, would procreate uh, through, you know, uh, sexual intercourse with uh, enslaved women women who were enslaved and then who were converted to Islam, who were given an education, you know, within Ottoman court culture. Uh, uh, this particular configuration basically allowed it for the Ottomans uh, to produce heirs to the throne from within the dynasty without necessarily entering into dynastic alliances or, you know, uh, relationships with, with any other dynasties. This is a major, uh, major constant in Ottoman history, this search for unifying power in the hands of a single figure. We already see it around the time of the founding figure, Osman. After he dies, uh, his son basically becomes the inheritor of the entire enterprise. Uh, a lot of other Turkish and Mongolian, you know, of dynasties, families coming from the background would divvy up the realm among the princes. And sometimes, you know, even the princesses might get a share. But in the Ottoman case, and I think they come up with the solution from a position of weakness because they really are a group of people without any major. Oh, I see. I, I see this. What you're saying. This is the Seljuks would do the do that. That's one of the weaknesses that was going on at the time of the First Crusade. Was that divvying up, which allowed the, yes, exactly. the, the Europeans to gobble them up one by yes, one by yes, one. Yes, exactly. And the Ottomans actually use it against other uh, similar dynasties around them uh, who are of a Turkish and Muslim origin, because there are these constant succession struggles among these different princes. Uh, and the realm gets divvied up, and the Ottomans usually use those kinds of tensions to impose themselves onto the uh, onto their neighboring Turkish and Muslim dynasties, and then gobble up their territories eventually. But they never do it themselves, so uh, that's why uh, you know if they they want a single prince to inherit the entire realm. And again, very very similar to this, they want you know members of the Ottoman dynasty. Uh, to not have any kind of ties to outside dynasties. They they used to have dynastic marriages in earlier centuries, but it's a practice that they basically abandoned by the mid-15th century. So they've innovated some new, a yeah. new sort of yeah. social cultural yeah. form in yeah. order to... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So interesting. As a result, Suleiman is born to an Ottoman prince and to a slave woman. So his status at birth, uh, very much like any man who is a member of the Ottoman dynasty, princes, at birth, Suleiman is eligible to come to the throne one day. So that's part of the uh, political uh, principle, the idea of succession. And this is something they inherit from that, you know, uh, Turco-Muslim tradition. So you don't have anything like, you know, uh, like a seniority principle for it. So I, I, I want to be clear on this. So because we're going to get to this, this is a recurring, yeah. a recurring theme, I yeah. suppose, throughout Ottoman history. Um, this is something that's been grafted into they're, they're innovating new social cultural forms. Like yes. if, if dad is a prince, you're a prince, even yes. if mom's a, yes. a slave. Exactly. Yes. But at the same time, there's the, the secession rules are no uh, I want to put this no clearer. Are they as complicated as they were when you were in a tribal setting? Yes, 
So, so the both are the new and the older are all mixed together that's, like layers on the cake. Exactly it, and that's what creates tension. And so, eventually, in the later centuries, I mean, starting with the late 16th century, they develop something that looks like a seniority principle, and then that seniority principle becomes enshrined in, okay. the, in dynastic law by the mid 17th century. But by the time Suleiman is born, yes, that's exactly as you said, and and that's that's one of the one of the really ma- major, uh, I don't want to call it a dilemma, but this is one of the major challenges, that strange mixture of the new and the old. So the old principle, which is seen as fair and just, is that every prince has the right to succeed the throne. But the new principle is that only one of them can do so. So the result has to be a sort of civil war. But at the same time, I mean, this, this, this almost becomes like a constitutional principle. So let's say that there's a civil war among three princes. One of them wins, the other two lose, and they always pay with their lives. You do not survive these situations. And your male children do not survive these situations either. So whoever wins basically exterminates every single other contender and some of their supporters. But then the entire polity comes around the new leader, you know, so you do not have something like the supporters of, let's say, your brother trying to constitute a separate uh, political entity or anything like that. That's why I call it, I call this this strange uh, practice of succession almost a constitutional principle in the sense that, so the political community at large recognizes that that will be a civil war, that will be a struggle. But then at the end of that struggle, the polity will be reunified. But it, I mean, I, pardon me if I'm naive, but it seems this is a great deal of brain power yes. is, is spent dealing with this exactly. and time. Yeah. It's, and it seems to me there might be more productive uses. Of, but but what's so there, there, there I'm, I struggled throughout the book to figure out, I mean, because we'll get to this, this is Suleiman is an old man. This is a, this is the focus it of his him down, right? It yes. wears it. It kills him earlier. Yes, yeah. But so, what's the advantage to the realm and to the monarch to have this sort of secession crisis to always be facing this crisis? So, the advantage for us as historians looking from the twenty first century, the advantage is that it keeps the whole enterprise unified. It doesn't divvy it up. And the unified enterprise basically, you know, is able to expand further and this and that. So this is an advantage that is recognized by the contemporaries. But there is another advantage that is also accepted by the contemporaries. Or I would say, you know, someone like a social Darwinist today might say something similar. But the idea is that, you know, the best prince to rule the realm will emerge out of these struggles. This will be either a form of, you know, an individual proving themselves or a sign of divine sanction, you know. So that's the the contemporary idea. I mean, you know, not only that the realm will remain unified, but the, the kingship sovereignty will be rejuvenated. through the struggle and then the best candidate will emerge to the top you know so it's a kind of 
election. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's a kind of a blood sport, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, 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 the tree of the Ottoman Empire must be fertilized by the blood of its princes, to yes. paraphrase Jefferson. Um, so um, I, I thought through many times that uh, to compare this to Game of Thrones is like comparing, ga- uh, it's like, Game of Thrones is not Alice in Wonderland Tea Party compared to this. It's the teacup ride at Disney World compared to this. Uh, Hunger Games. <laughs> I mean, no. Lord still. Of, Lord of still, still closer. <laughs> but nicer palaces. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, so back to Suleiman. Yes. Uh, it, are, did the, have the Ottomans kind of a adapted a, a Byzantine sort of cursus honorum or a Roman cursus honorum for training yeah. training a prince and because yes. it seems like there is a there's a curriculum but there's also like offices that he will hold if he is to be worthy eventually in the, yes, in, the yes. in the games yes ex- exactly uh, so the entire story of the Ottoman Empire one of the most impressive things is that it is a story of acculturation. We have a group of nomads who come from a position of extreme weakness as soldiers of fortune. They are able to survive and create these ideas of political leadership. They also start creating very early on ideologies of historical action, like jihad and Gaza and stuff like that. I mean, uh, funnily enough, the, the first Ottoman rulers have a lot of Christian supporters who are waging Gaza together with a bunch of Muslims against other Muslims sometimes. You know, so, uh, mm-hmm. That's why I called Gaza a, an ideology of action rather than a religious ideology. So we have this group of people, but then, I mean, they are great learners and imitators. So yes, by the time we come to Suleiman's childhood, let's say around the year 1500, when he would start his elementary education, uh, what we see is a group of people, I think I say somewhere in the book something like, you know, if Osman had seen his great-great-grandson Bayezid II at the end of the 15th century or vice versa, they would be unable to recognize each other. They could even feel enmity against one another because the founder, Osman, would look like an uneducated, unruly, uh, you know, soldier of fortune to the courtly bias of the second. So princely education is, again, another thing that the Ottomans learn how to do and how to do very well from their neighbors, you know, through uh, political, uh, cultural relations, through, uh, you know, migrant scholars, Ottoman scholars themselves. So this is not obviously like a well-formulated syllabus, but it is an education with certain uh, elements that are identifiable in it. So obviously, you know, uh, reading to, how to learn and how to write those kinds of elementary skills start very, very early on. Uh, but at the same time, there's this gentlemanly ideal, uh, the reading of literature, read the reading of poetry, and eventually the writing of poetry. So the Ottoman princes are basically educated as uh, future gentlemen in that regard. Uh, They receive a very thorough education. Uh, The reading of history plays a very major role in their training. Uh, And again, you know, the reading of religious texts, popular literature, lives of the saints, you know, those kinds of things obviously clearly figure in their education. But, you know, when we look at it in total, there is a certain idea 
and they have very distinct idea about the education of a prince. There's also martial training, uh, you know, hunting, the use of weapons. So then look at, you know, the rest of the life of Suleiman. Uh, two of the things that he likes to do most are, number one, the reading and writing of poetry. Number two, going away okay. on a hunt. Mm-hmm. And these are the two things in which, you know, he's instructed from early childhood. And these are very, as you know, I mean, like, these are very princely virtues. I looked at uh, some literature about the education of Byzantine princes. It's really, I mean, uh, the titles of the books are different, obviously, and they would receive a Christian education versus the others. It is the same. I mean, what does Hen- what does Henry VIII spend his time doing at this yes, age? Exactly writing, writing music and songs, which is poetry. Yes, and, exactly. and hunting and hunting and yeah. hunting. Yeah. And tennis <laughs> and tennis. Okay, that's that's a little different, but it, yeah, it's the same. Um, yeah. They, but one thing that that the uh, Henry the Seventh is as clever as he is doesn't have his young son do is be a governor somewhere. Yes. But the Ottomans are very good at that. You can see how they're like, they're giving them all this administrative training at a young age, testing them out in this way. They are. They really are. So then you think of it, Suleiman basically serves as a governor from for 10 years, around 10 years. Uh, and yes, this is a time, I mean, the first couple of years when he is in Kaffa, this is a time of troubles his father is waging a war of succession against Suleiman's grandfather and his uncles and stuff like that. So Suleiman's governorship in Kaffa, I don't know how instructive that was. I We have just one major record from his governorship in Kaffa. We have a court register that talks about people in the company of Suleiman. And you see that he has a household, but a Fairly small household. We should say briefly about the household. Yeah. I I realize how important the household is because it's like an embryonic. It's also running your household at that, uh, even of as small as it is. I mean, well, you know, by our standards, it's massive. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. By Downton Abbey standards, it's massive. I mean, Lord, Lord, what's his name? Didn't have 10 or 11 concubines, five eunuchs, uh, you know, uh, 37 guardsmen. He has basically a platoon of soldiers, but it's an, it's as it were, it's the Sultan's household, but an embryo to to be able to. Yeah. It really is an embryo. So, and yeah, after when they reach puberty around this time, I'm talking about, you know, around the time of uh, Suleiman's childhood, when they reach puberty, the Ottoman princes are sent out to serve as governors. The title is, uh, we translate it uh, as uh, district governor. Uh, so they basically become governors of these townships. A, a district is usually centered around a township, a major town. It may have a couple of other smaller towns, a bunch of villages, agricultural areas. There may be some commercial, artisanal activity. But it's it's basically a functioning unit. As it's, it's a microcosm of the, you know, uh, of the, uh, entire realm and the district governor uh, under the supervision of a tutor appointed by the father and in company of his mother. That's also what happens with concubine mothers. They accompany their sons in these district governorships. Uh, so the prince goes out, his mother, his tutor are in his company and he has uh, basically, he also starts establishing his own household, which means that he's given his own concubines he has his guardsmen. He has tailors working for him, bakers, 
you know, people working in his stables, his and falcon mo- keepers. And mother is reporting on him to dad back in yeah. Const- and yeah. you know, in Constantinople. Uh, she's also running the concubines, which is yeah. as I, as I say in my notes, Doctor Freud would have smoked a cigar, probably taken put the lid yeah, in exactly. in his mouth. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a it's a fraught situation. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And the concubine mother, the mother from a slave background, basically, is promoted uh, to one of the most critical positions in the life of a prince, because after a while, the prince becomes independent from the father, and basically, you know, he's accompanied by the mother who takes care of his well-being, his overall you know demeanor, but also his sexual life. Then he starts having sexual intercourse with concubines. The mother is basically the supervisor of all that. And yes, as, as you said, her part of her job is to basically, you know, keep an eye on the prince and, you know, send reports uh, back to wherever the father is. Uh, if he serves as sultan, he would be in Constantinople around this time. The tutor has a similar role, but the mother's role is kind of much more intimate. And in Suleiman's case, he establishes a really close relationship with his mother to the end of to the end of her life, basically. And he mm-hmm. actually, you know, empowers her. He gives her money to engage in charitable works, build a complex to her to her name, which is really interesting. I mean, it it, it tells you about the the level of their relationship. So, Salim, Suleiman's dad, sounds like what the English would call a proper lad. Yes. I, sus- I suspect he spent more time in the royster doistering part of the Sultan stuff and not so much time with poetry. I don't know. But he's certainly, he's a warrior. He likes going on campaign. I think he probably likes sleeping outside, being with the troops. And he's he's a conqueror. He's, yeah. he's he, yeah. he gets he gets Egypt. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I can, he's always, it, will the boy measure up? You know, yes. he's, he's a little worried about that. Well, the boy measures up. Yeah. The boy might actually have taken a page out of Dad's book, yeah, and yeah. and yeah. off and gotten rid of Dad. Um, it's it's unclear, but eventually, Salim dies, perhaps poisoned, uh, and Suleiman takes the throne, September thirtieth, fifteen twenty. We have to get to there because we're already halfway over halfway through the program, and yeah. we gotta have to get Suleiman into the Sultanate. Yes, so. Um, he takes over and immediately he's confronted with the problems of a new sultan. Uh, he has to establish himself over the Askari elite. So who yeah. are the Askari elite? Yeah. And what does Suleiman have to do to put them under his th- to lead the both push and pull them? Yes. So uh, let me correct one thing. Uh, Suleiman's grandfather, Bayezid II, dies. Yeah poisoned and he's the one that's poisoned yeah, he's yeah, the one right. that's poisoned Selim dies of natural uh causes uh, okay fortunately <laughs> <laughs> so Selim as you said I mean he's an he's he's an interesting and polarizing figure he does write poetry he's oh, okay. he's, he's a very good poet but he mostly writes in Persian okay uh but I mean when you look at his output it's much smaller than Suleiman's yes Selim is this person who is convinced of his own worth and he basically believes that you know his father or his brothers failed to recognize it he thinks that he has the best reading of the political situation with the rise of the Safavids to the east of the Ottomans Uh, so he has this very inflated uh, sense of self 
but it also looks like you know he was a fairly skilled uh, military tactician as well as leader in the sense that he knew how to motivate other people uh, to join him. Uh, because there are a couple of other Ottoman princes before Selim in Ottoman history who rebelled against their fathers, but you know they were not successful. In Selim's case, it's fairly amazing that you know, but he's he's able to come from what is then a provincial backwater like Trabzon and cross the Red Sea into the Crimean Peninsula and, you know, basically come down, have a battle with his father, lose the battle, escape, and then be invited to the throne by the Janissaries in Constantinople, come back, have his father abdicate, kick his father out of the city. He's poisoned during his final trip. Selim comes to the throne in 1512, has his surviving brothers and nephews killed, takes Syria and Egypt, stops the advance of the Safavids in eight years, yeah. and then he dies. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge burden on Suleiman in a number yeah. of ways. First of all, by all accounts, Selim is an overbearing person. It cannot have been pleasant to grow up under the shadow of a father like that. Actually, I mean, I try not to speculate in the book, but at, there are a couple of places, one of them is, I speculate that the particularly positive relationship he has with his mother, as well as with other female relatives, may be due, due to the fact that, you know, he, he had to grow up, you know, under this very violent. And by violent, I don't mean that Selim was violent towards Suleiman. We don't know that, but, you know, he's this, this sort of uber macho figure. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, uh, your father is this stellar conqueror, you know, who doubles the size of the Ottoman territories in a couple of years, and then he suddenly dies. And then you come to the throne unopposed, which is a very good thing because Selim doesn't have any surviving sons, but at the same time, a relative unknown for the members of the elite, the so-called Askeri elite. The, the, we, we kind of, so Askeri means military, but we kind of use it as a catch-all to imply, you know, members of the elite fulfilling military fun functions, bureaucratic functions, as well as religious slash judicial functions. They do not pay taxes and they abide by a sort of special legislation in, in the sense that if they commit a crime, you know, uh, they go to a different kind of judge. Uh, and in return, they serve the Ottoman dynasty. So I emphasize the importance of this particular class because another misconception of, you know, Ottoman history or much of, frankly, non-European history, we are very intent on finding democratic or action in European history, but when it comes to Middle Eastern or let's say Chinese history, usually people look for autocrats, you know. Uh, in the Ottoman case, uh, the, the elite itself, you know, uh, tens of thousands of uh, soldiers in Istanbul, members of the standing army, as well as palace servants, uh, the religious establishment, uh, the bureaucrats are kind of the smallest group group, but these are the critical people that help Suleiman or any other sultan fight wars and run the realm. So you have to constantly negotiate with them. And especially if you are a relatively unknown and relatively young ruler like Suleiman coming to the throne after, you know, 
a father like Selim, you have to be uh, particularly cautious. So Suleiman has these major challenges as, as he becomes Sultan on September 30, uh, 1520. He has to ingratiate himself with the members of the elite. At the same time, he also has to start cautiously replacing them with his own people, members of his own household uh, from his time as the Shriek governor. Uh, he has to start projecting a new image. Uh, it's very conspicuous that the earliest correspondence that, that is uh, written down during the you know first weeks, months of Suleiman on the throne already start presenting him as a just sultan. Why? What did he do to, to be classified as just? Nothing yet, but this is kind of one of the ways in which he tries to distinguish himself from his father. He presents himself as a sort of, you know, as a universally equitable, just sultan, because this is not necessarily the reputation that his father has. You know, uh, he also distributes enormous amounts of money uh, to the members uh, of the Askeri elite. Uh, in order to ingratiate himself with them. Uh, and his first military campaigns, uh, I am looking at your questions and it makes sense that, you know, like your question about the military campaigns follows your question about his accession. Those military campaigns are again part of this uh, attempt at image building because mm -hmm. Selim, the father, does not organize any military campaigns uh, against the European Christians. Selim basically fights against the Mamluks of Egypt, who are Muslims, and then against the Safavids, who are also Muslims, even though the Ottomans think they are heretics and this and that, but he basically fights against neighboring Muslims. So the fact that Suleiman, you know, uh, organizes his first two military campaigns against Hungary and against the Knights Hospitaller of Rhodes, uh, I mean, these are among the long-term strategic targets of the Ottomans. So like he doesn't invent them uh, from scratch. But at the same time, it is, again, as conspicuous as him insisting on being called a just sultan. It is very conspicuous that, you know, uh, these would be the first uh, military campaigns that he would organize against, yeah. against European Christians. And, they, and it puts him on the map. Yeah, it does. It, in a, he, it makes Charles V his particular enemy. And, uh, and of course, uh, fighting and uh, defeating the last crusading order in yeah. their, for, their fortress island of Rhodes. Exactly. That also is, that gives you a certain cachet in both the Islamic and also the, the Christian worlds. You know this from European history, obviously. Yes, I mean... It's not as big as the fall of Constantinople, but the capture of Rhodes becomes a huge pamphlets, news circulating. Yes, exactly. Uh, I would say definitely these, the, his first two campaigns, which he organizes for mostly internal reasons, also uh, definitely make him, you know, very visible to the to the Europeans, and they're also shocked because when you read the first European uh, sort of observations about Suleiman, the Venetian uh, envoys in Constantinople, they, they say that, you know, the father, the lion, was uh, succeeded by a lamb. So there is this sort of initial impression that he's very meek, he's very cautious. There's, there, he's, I, there's, there's, there's portraits of him at a young age. He's extraordinarily pale. Yes. He looks, yes. He looks like an ascetic poet. Yes, exactly. You know, he, you know. He may have looked like that because, the, the, interestingly enough, the first uh, 
descriptions of him after he comes to the throne and those portraits interestingly enough kind of you know uh come together he may have looked like that uh you know like longer neck very pale kind of thin lanky almost maybe maybe it looks like he has tb yeah it looks like it's the only thing i can say and he's seen as very meek you know yeah uh, so yeah but and and then it's not just that he fights and defeats the forces of hungary which even great grandfather hadn't been able to do takes belgrade takes takes budapest but then the diplomacy is is it's genius level stuff the way that he the way that he treats the Hungarians and basically puts Christian Hungarians firmly as his vassals, yeah, and, and, and they accept it, is it's really quite extraordinary. That, that, that's again another misperception that you know a lot of uh, European scholars would have. I mean, not all of them, because there are a lot of European scholars working on you know diplomacy between the Europeans and the Ottomans. But as you know, the overall perception is again that you know. Uh, the Ottomans were not adept at diplomacy. They knew how to fight. They didn't know how to negotiate. That sort of stuff, which is absolute nonsense. Uh, and under Suleiman, and after Suleiman, the active uh, this diplomatic activity goes on. Uh, it exists before Suleiman as well. But I think, I mean, again, under Suleiman, there is a kind of transformation that is due at least to two reasons. First of all, the Ottomans, as we were discussing a while ago, I mean, there's this transition from regional kingdom to a kind of empire with global pretensions. As a result of which, you know, you collect news from all over the world, you receive envoys from Central Asia, uh, from, you know, uh, from around the Indian Ocean, from Poland. Uh, so the sort of political playing ground on which you imagine yourself grows. Related to that, your engagements on the same ground also grow rather than fighting, you know, a bunch of local princes and kings in the Balkans. Now you are competing with Charles V. You know, uh, or you are rather than competing with small regional powers, you are competing with a sort of consolidated uh, Safavid dynasty uh, ruling over Iran. Uh, this basically means more warfare, more violence, more military expenditures, but it also means more diplomacy because it's it's impossible to manage a state of permanent warfare, uh, especially you know in an early modern society like this. Uh, so diplomacy has to grow. So there's there's a structural reason. But in the case of Suleiman and especially his first Grand Vizier Ibrahim, uh, sorry, uh, the, the the first Grand Vizier he appoints. He has a Grand Vizier he inherits from his father. Uh, so Suleiman and Ibrahim are particularly keen in having these conversations with European diplomats. You know, so there's a personal, almost there's there's a palpable like personal aspect to it there's this growing interest you know let's talk about the, those two personalities first ibrahim the grand vizier and uh, then i want to talk about Khrem. yeah uh his well, we'll talk about their relationship because it's an extraordinary relationship given what we've already said about concubinage and the way that this works in the in the ottoman tradition um ibrahim is Am I right in my reading that he is 
an enslaved boy that grows up with Suleiman? I mean, they do they grow up together? Uh, there are a couple of different stories about that. Uh, some say that they grew up together. My, I am closer to the argument that uh, Ibrahim was given to Suleiman as a slave, as a gift uh, around 15, 14, 15, 15, around that time. So they did not grow up together, but I think Sul- Ibrahim was with Suleiman during his, dis- as at least part of his district governorship before he came to the throne in the Western Anatolian city of Manisa. So in a way you can say that they spent a critical period of their lives together just before Suleiman came to the throne. And it's conceivable that they would have discussed things that, you know, Suleiman would do after coming to the throne and this and so they were together at the very least during a formative period. They may not have grown up together, but they spent a critical time of their lives together before Suleiman came to the throne. And and who was Ibra- where was Abraham from? Do we know uh, about his origins? Yeah, we know that he's from the Dalmatian coast, uh, most probably uh, from a town called Parga. Uh, his there are in some diplomatic reports he's described as speaking some sort of a Slavic language. So it is likely that, you know, he may have been uh, from one of those uh, Slavic-speaking communities on the Dalmatian coast uh, who were under Venetian rule. His ancestors may have been Catholic or Orthodox Christian. We can't be exactly sure. But yes, he's he's from slave origins. And he's been educated somehow. And he's certainly very clever, maybe too clever by half. A little bit, especially by the end of his life, that becomes particularly obvious. But yes, yeah. he's, he's very well educated. Uh, I don't know where he would have received his education. Probably, you know, as a slave under the Ottomans, uh, mostly, uh, because we know that he was not from a wealthy family. So I, but who knows? I mean, this that's all conjecture. But after mm-hmm. becoming enslaved by the Ottomans, he would have received a kind of Ottoman education. It looks like he took to it with particular enthusiasm because he's a wonderful conversationalist by all accounts he plays musical instruments so he's this extremely i mean you would imagine him easily in an italian court this supremely intelligent extremely you know cultured person with all of these political visions in his mind. And, and he's, he's mar- very good at charming ambassadors. Yes. Uh, a, a group at the time which are very difficult to charm, I would imagine. Yes, yes. He has a great relationship with the ambassadors. He has long discussions with them, and the ambassadors talk about that. I mean, it looks like he relishes those kinds of interactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he's very fond of precious objects, status symbols, a lot of conspicuous consumption going on. Uh, he has his own palace near the great palace where Suleiman resides. Uh, and his palace is on the, he, he overlooks the Hippodrome of Constantinople. It's, it's in one, one of the most visible parts of the city. You know. Now, is he the kind of person that, that uh, Suleiman's great-grandfather or grandfather or father would have made into a grand vizier? Is this something, was Suleiman doing something different in appointing this sort of personal... Yeah. Suleiman is doing something fairly radical. Uh, So his 
when we look at the Ottoman Grand Viziers, initially they come from these, you know, Anatolian families uh, with a certain from prominent Anatolian families. I mean, there is no aristocracy in the in the Western sense uh, in the Ottoman case, but you know, if there were, these people would be aristocrats, uh, like you know, lords serving as chief minister, that kind of thing. So, so the first Ottoman grand viziers are kind of uh, you know from among the ranks of these uh, prominent Anatolian families, and then in time, they are replaced by converts from Christianity to Islam. Uh, so, for instance, under Mehmed II. Uh, a member of one of the Balkan aristocracies uh, becomes Grand Vizier, you know, after he converts to Islam. Uh, we also have a member of a Byzantine dynastic family who converts to Islam and also becomes Grand Vizier under Mehmed II. And then the Grand Viziers uh, basically come from among the ranks of these converts to Islam who serve the Ottoman dynasty. But usually there's there's a kind of uh, there's a level of experience that you have to gain before becoming grand vizier. You know, you work for the palace. Uh, you are given, let's say, a district governorship, and then you advance through the ranks. You become a uh, provincial governor. You may become third vizier, second vizier, and then become a grand vizier. In the case of Ibrahim, in his search to transform the upper echelons of the Ottoman administration to his will. Suleiman makes a number of radical decisions. Uh, he also appoints one of his, his own slaves from the inner household as the commander of the navy. Uh, but in the case of Ibrahim, that's the most obvious and the sort of most criticized decision. You basically have someone who only served in the close company of the sultan or of the prince and who only fulfilled domestic functions become the chief official of the empire. Is he still a slave? When he's, yes, he's, he remains a slave. As a grand vizier, he's a yes, slave. as a grand vizier, as were huh. the others. Interestingly enough, uh, so there are indications that, for instance, Suleiman uh, manumitted his wife, Hurem. Uh, so... You know, in the second half of her life, there's a chance she may not have been, you know, a slave, but rather a free Muslim. But there are no indications that Ibrahim was manumitted. So he remains a slave of Suleiman to the end of his life, which, by the way, according to the Sharia is illegal because he's also a Muslim and a Muslim cannot have another Muslim as, as a slave. But that's the Ottoman system for you. As you were saying, the new and the old coming together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Hurem briefly. Yeah. Um, who, who is she? And there's another. There's talking about. There's another transgressive relationship in, yes. in its way. So again, she's she's a woman from a slave background, like Suleiman's mother. Uh, I think she may have been among the slaves that Suleiman received as an accession gift. And a couple of years after he comes to the throne or perhaps earlier than that, Suleiman establishes a relationship with her. And then eventually that relationship turns into a sort of monogamous relationship. So again, in that peculiar Ottoman system, let's say that a prince or a sultan has sexual intercourse with a concubine. And after that concubine gives birth to a boy, 
the male partner moves on to another concubine. So usually uh, Suleiman's uncles, for instance, the sons of Bayezid II, are from different mothers. You know. uh, but in, in the case of Hurem and Suleiman, they basically defy this system. And Suleiman has relations with concubines, but eventually, you know, uh, and as I was saying, in the early years of his reign, he establishes a monogamous relationship uh, with Hurem. So his remaining children are born to her. So rather than giving birth to a single son, Hurem basically uh, gives birth uh, to a number of children. In the case of Suleiman, again, without psychologizing him too much, the search for bright, intelligent people with whom he can become intimate is an obvious constant in his life. Ibrahim, Hurem, these are by all accounts extremely intelligent people whose company Suleiman enjoys. Then we look at his other associations, some poets with whom he establishes a close relationship, uh, his daughter Mihrumah uh, with whom he becomes very close towards the end of his life, his son Jihangir who tragically dies uh, as a result of a congenital uh, you know, physical condition. These are people very close to him, and it looks like these are supremely interesting, very, very intelligent people. So this is the kind of person to whom he feels attracted. Good. I want to talk about, we're, we're already almost uh, at the typical ending point, about an hour, uh, but I, there's three things I want to talk about Yes. Uh, in rapid succession. So one is this, the grand vision. Yeah, and then uh, and what happens to Ibrahim? Yeah, uh, and then we'll move on to uh, some, a very interesting observation you make about Suleiman at the height of his powers. Yeah. Uh, so, f- what was the grand vision? And um, I, I think it we I think it has a, a lasting importance. Yes. Uh, until in the minds certainly of both Ottomans but also Europeans until long after its sell by date. I yes. think it, 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 it sort of outlasted the actual potency behind it. Yes, 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 definitely. So the grand vision, this is something that Suleiman and Ibrahim come up with. And as I discuss in the book, there's a textual sort of manifesto of sorts, which is uh, prepared in uh, 1524-25. The preamble I, to the laws of Egypt. Yes, which, exactly. Which sounds like a, a, a crazy place, but of course, it's a constitutional statement. <laughs> it really it, is. It is. So, it, I mean, it makes sense funny. that that's where it would be. Yes. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful to be talking to another, you know, history buff. We understand it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, that's what it is. Uh, so, Suleiman and Ibrahim, I think, are influenced, and I discuss it in some detail in the book. Uh, as you and I were saying, this is a time in which these universalist eschatological political ideas uh, are all over the place. The interesting thing about the Ottomans and about Suleiman and Ibrahim is that they take elements from the Muslim and Christian traditions. I mean, that's, I'm not calling it a synthesis because, you know, it's a it's a loaded term. I mean, like, you know, did they want to come to a synthesis? You know, were they open-minded? Uh, so I, I want to leave all, all of that sort of stuff aside. It's a form of pragmatism in their case. Mm-hmm. But they take these ideas from, you know, Central Asian courts, from the Muslim tradition about the notion 
of a messianic figure who is born under a particular astrological, you know, uh, conjunction of the stars, hence divinely sanctioned, but also a figure who is going to act as a renewer of religion. This is someone who will rejuvenate religion, you know. And then from the European side, uh, there are all these apocalyptic and messianic themes about the approaching uh, end of time, about uh, you know, the signs of the end, the notion of the last world emperor, they kind of unify all of these into a sort of coherent program, according to which Suleiman, assisted by the perfect servant, Ibrahim, is going to conquer the entire world. And they are going to unify Islam and Christianity under a single righteous idea of religion, and they will usher in a sort of, you know, golden age that will precede the end of time. Mm. It, it is it is fairly coherent, and it is not out of tune with the discussions of the time. To us from today, it looks a little fantastic, but well, what's what's I mean, Charles V could have written that about himself. Yes, exactly, and. You see it in the diplomatic documents. I mean, the Ottomans are very much bothered by Charles's use of the imperial titles. And they keep saying, I mean, you are the king of Spain. We are the true emperor, which, I mean, this is one of my favorite things. It I was, keep it, it was, I can tell that, but I, I enjoyed Imagine it immensely. his face and his jaw when yeah. he's read that. You are the king mm-hmm. of Spain. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so, Ibrahim eventually... Um, is executed in 1536. Why? That's one of the biggest mysteries yeah. of Suleiman's rule. I think a number of things came together. Uh, the grand vision did not materialize. Uh, they, Suleiman and Ibrahim had these large-scale campaigns in Europe. They were, to a certain extent, successful, but they were unable to defeat the Habsburgs or to conquer Rome. And then they had a long campaign against the Safavids. And again, they were unable to dislodge the Safavids. So the grand vision basically was kind of tested by the realities, logistical, political, environmental, whatever conditions of the time. And the grand vision did not materialize. And Ibrahim was a major uh, representative of that. So I think this may have been one reason why Suleiman, you know, felt alienated uh, from his friend because, you know, their partnership increasingly started to represent a kind of failure of the grand vision. Ibrahim's conspicuous consumption, his sort of magnanimous behavior also seems to have estranged a lot of people, you know, around the court including Suleiman's, you know, partner, not yet wife, uh, because they get married after uh, 1536, after Ibrahim is executed. Uh, So I think even Hurem has a checkered relationship with Ibrahim and Ibrahim's wife, uh, Hmm. who is Suleiman's niece. Uh, Ibrahim and Suleiman's niece have a son, and they call him... And you see it in their correspondence. They address that son with royal and imperial titles. This is a slave, even though he's married to an Ottoman princess. So all of those things, the sum total of, I think, 
somewhere in the book I call it, you know, a death by a thousand rumors or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that's what happens. I mean, all of that comes together to reach such a point that Suleiman and Ibrahim's partnership and friendship is not viable anymore. And that's the moment where basically Suleiman uses his power to have his friend, but also his grand vizier and his slave executed in 1536. Now, I, we're not going to have time to explain the, the degree to which uh, Suleiman reshaped the institutions of the Ottomans, yeah. the way that he showered wealth upon charitable be- bequests, yeah. architectural planning, yeah. I mean, is is extraordinary achievement. Yeah. Uh, as a ruler, if you leave all the military campaigns out yeah. of it, yes, um, and, the, and all the diplomacy, it'd still be an extraordinary achievement. And yeah. yet, you say, you say that uh, even during these years, at the height of his powers, his life remained filled with tensions. Um, is this? I mean, with Ibrahim, you can see this. Is this yes. also? Is this also because he's thinking of the secession crisis to come? Yes, exactly, and. I guess this will be our last question and answer. Uh, yeah. I'm very sorry. His, that's historians for you. We talk too much. Uh, but <laughs> we, we left uh, new things uh, to be, you know, to be learned by our readers, hopefully, because we, we, we covered yeah. only one third of the book. Uh, <laughs> but not the same one third. Yeah. <laughs> this is an excellent point, And I think this is the right tone to finish a conversation about the life of Suleiman. Uh, and these dichotomies, these ambiguities that you so correctly identified, and you and I have been talking about those things. I mean, very much like every human life, but it's even more uh, obvious in the life of a prominent figure like him. There are these new initiatives. There are these achievements. Yes, major institutionalization, uh, the sort of, you know, a new kind of, a new way of, managing the land and resources of the empire, uh, new laws, uh, new technologies, new ideologies, and the charitable legacy is truly, truly uh, staggering. Uh, And it it is spread all over the empire, basically. And it's, to this day, it's the most visible legacy of Suleiman, you know, from Mecca and Medina to Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, to Damascus, to Constantinople, places in the Balkans. I mean, it is it is his most visible uh, legacy. So there is that. That's kind of the new. This is the initiative and this is the achievement. At the same time, there is the burden of the old that he cannot get rid of. And the succession crisis, basically, you know, is, is the best representative of that. So Suleiman, by the last decades of his life, he has his oldest surviving son is from a different concubine. His name is Mustafa. Uh, uh, Suleiman also has three other sons with Hurem who are uh, surviving. This is, this is from the late 1540s onwards. So he has four surviving sons. One of them, congenital defect, he's generally accepted as, you know, not being able to succeed his father. Uh, but there are three viable sons, one of them from a different mother, which further complicates things. So what do you do when you are Suleiman? 
How do you manage that? Especially since, again, starting with the mid to late 1540s, the princes themselves start uh, behaving in such a way that you, you get the clear idea that they are anticipating an upcoming succession struggle, especially his oldest son. You see that he's building up a reputation for himself. He's creating a body of loyal followers. In his correspondence, you see that he sees himself as the rightful heir to the throne. So what does Suleiman do if he doesn't do anything? You know, if there's going to be a civil war among the princes. He tries to do something. He has his oldest son executed on the suspicion of uh, rebellion. But even that doesn't stop the tragedy because his two surviving sons, both sons of Hurem, basically this time start fighting against one another. The losing one escapes into Iran where he's executed a number of years later. Uh, so by 1562, there's only one heir that remains, which is, I mean, okay. Uh, which ensures the succession. And that son also has another son. So the succession is guaranteed, but by 1562, the sort of best and smartest, best educated, probably best qualified princes for succession are gone. They are all dead. Hmm. Suleiman spends a lot of money as well as personal capital. His image collapses I mean, this is really interesting. You have these ambassadorial reports uh, from the last years of his reign, and the gossip in the streets of Constantinople is that this ruthless person, he had his sons and his grandsons executed. Just This this becomes his image, despite all the charitable works and everything. So the succession issue basically undermines the last 20 years of his life, roughly. And then personal health. In the early 1540s, uh, the first signs of gout show themselves, and his gout becomes very, very acute. And there are indications that there are also some uh, digestive and circulation-related problems in the last years of his life. So he is also, he's a wreck. I mean, uh, psychologically, you know, uh, physical health, succession crisis, Huram dies in 1558. So his life basically ends in this sort of very, very uh, bleak atmosphere. Well, uh, but nonetheless, when Voltaire refers to the Grand Turk, he might be referring to the contemporary Sultan. Yeah. But he's really referring to Suleiman. (laughs) I think Suleiman, uh, his great-grandfather, Mehmed II, the Grand Turk is kind of a composite image, but yes, a, a good chunk of that composite image is made up of uh, Suleiman. I mean, interestingly enough, after he dies, uh, his image is reconstituted. And, you know, I guess human society is kind of need to create and recreate these kinds of figures as, you know, uh, it's almost like a kind of ancestor worship, but also, you know, historical figures, examples, and this and that. So it's, it is indeed quite interesting that, you know, after he dies, uh, his, his image goes through these different uh, phases of revision, and he does emerge as 
as the sort of Grand Turk or the Magnificent or the lawgiver in the Ottoman Turkish tradition. So it looks like the later generations do a kind of calculation as almost like a sort of, you know, uh, test and on the balance, the positive sides weigh more than the negative sides in a way. And also, I mean, Suleiman does a lot, institutionalization, military conquest, charity. So for later generations trying to imagine a Go, an Ottoman golden age, for instance, you know, f- under different circumstances. I mean, he's he's the he be, he does become the obvious candidate. And also, one last thing, uh, he is the first builder of his own image. So, if he could see, you know, the the sort of more the sort of less critical, uh, you know, descriptions of him today, I think he would have been very happy, because this is the kind of image that he's trying to leave to posterity. His charitable work. The illustrated history, the book of Suleiman that he commissions towards the end of his life, other histories of his reign that he has written, his own poetry, thousands of poems. He works very hard at leaving behind a certain kind of image. And as the grim developments of the last years of his reign are forgotten in time, the markers that he leaves behind as constituent parts of his image survive. And the later generations kind of pick up on them, which I find extremely interesting. He really is the first first builder of his own image. My guest today has been Kaya Shaheen. He's the author of Peerless Among Princes, The Life and Times of Sultan Suleiman, which you will have to read for more about the thousands of poems and all the things that Especially we should have talked about. Especially since you didn't cover most of the book. <laughs> we shouldn't cover most of the book. And it's about half as long, or it's a third as long. It's only 250 pages. Yeah. It could have been a thousand. And you, yes. and you still wouldn't have covered it all. Yes. Kaya, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much. This was extremely enjoyable for me. What a pleasure. Uh, wishing you all the best. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.